I saw this in myself in the, more so in the past than now, certainly. But this idea of disengagement because to, you know, to be a part of politics or to be involved in these dialogues is beneath us because we're spiritual people who are all about peace and love and Zen and, and all that stuff. And that, to me, doesn't feel real. I don't believe love is silent in the face of injustice. I believe the love I'm speaking about makes a lot of noise in the face of injustice. Scott Stabile is the author of Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. I also speak with Dr. Andrew Budson, co-author with Maureen O'Connor, of Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It. We really do uh, understand a lot more today about memory problems than we did even a few years ago, and there are more things that we can do to diagnose and treat it. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. My two guests on this episode will help us love more and remember more. Love and memory. Scott Stabile is the author of Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. And I just encourage people to play, like to look at, look at it, look at how love impacts your life and look at how when you're choosing it. And again, love means kindness, love means compassion, love means forgiveness. When you're choosing these things more often, I have no doubt that you're going to see your life change in a positive way. In the second half of the show, I will speak with Dr. Andrew Budson. He, along with Maureen O'Connor, have co-written Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory what's normal, what's not, and what to do about it. Uh, vitamin B12, it's very common for people to have deficiencies uh, of it. And I, I want to be clear, if your uh, levels are normal, taking extra vitamin B12 uh, has not been shown to be helpful. But it is very common to have low levels of B12. And believe it or not, even if you take a B12 supplement, your vitamin levels can sometimes be low because as people get older, a large percentage of the population has difficulty absorbing uh, B12. So it is important to get that, uh, that one vitamin level checked. Love and memory on Progressive Spirit. Up first is Scott Stabile. His book is Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. Scott has uh, inspirational posts and videos. Uh, he's huge on Facebook with a billion followers. <laughs> anyway, he's on tour talking about his book, and I got a, had a chance to catch up with him while uh, he's in the, in the Bay Area. Although originally, although lives in Detroit. Scott, welcome to Progressive Spirit. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here, John. Your book uh, is really fascinating. It's very vulnerable. You put yourself right out there. 
Um, I want to talk about that a little bit too. But tell me how the book came to be. Why, why, why did you write this book, and why is it called Big Love? Well, I wrote the book because I love to uh, write about and talk about and explore the themes that I think are all connected to love, themes like kindness and compassion and forgiveness and authenticity. And those have been themes that I've been writing about on my Facebook page for the past five years. And the community there has really grown, and it's been an incredibly positive experience. Um, but I wanted to go deeper into all of those areas, and I wanted to connect them um, a little more directly to my life experiences and certain things that I've been through and how I've come to find forgiveness and how empathy has served me. But, you know, in a book, you can uh, you can do more of a deep dive than typically on social media. So that's why I wrote the book. And also not everyone's on social media, you know, and I, uh, I want to connect and reach people who may not be logging onto Facebook every day. Uh, and then big love, I've that's been those two words have been favorites of mine for a long time together. And it's usually the sign off whenever I do a lot of live videos on my Facebook page. And whenever I sign off, it's always with big love. So it seemed like the perfect choice for the title of my book. Well, it also seems like something uh, we could really use in the world, doesn't it? Uh, big love. I mean, certainly we think of all of the spiritual leaders uh, throughout our past have, have talked about the importance of, of love. If, if, I could, if I could put that to you, how, how do you define love? I knew you were going to ask that. And it's so funny. I still don't have a great answer for this because for me, love, I define love as an energy. Um, and it is for me the energy that exists beyond all of the noise in my head and all of the noise in the outside world when I feel most grounded in myself um, and most in touch with who I really am. It, I feel like I'm in love. I'm sinking into that love energy. So for me, um, that energy informs so much that exists in the world and all good things that exist. So when we're operating from kindness that's love in action. That's the energy of love in action. When we're operating from compassion, that's the energy of love in action. So that's really how I see love more than anything in energy and the most pure, beautiful energy that we have to work with in this world. And many people might say, well, it's it's easy for people to say love when they've never had, you know, uh, any bad things happen to them or people, you know, harm them or hurt them. But, of course, the point of your book about big love is actually love happens at that moment if it means anything at all. And, and certainly you tell your story of some real tragic things. Uh, your parents, for example, your parents were, were, were murdered. And it took a while for you to get to a point where you could you were able to feel that or acknowledge that. Can you talk about uh, that story a little bit and that turning point where you were, were ready to stop burying uh, your feelings and uh, be able to talk about that? Absolutely. So, you know, my I was 14 when my parents were shot to death in their market. They had a fruit market in Detroit. And, uh, you know, at the time, it was such an overwhelming uh, tragedy and completely uprooted everything I knew about my life. Um, so I did bury the pain and it wasn't even a conscious thing that I did. It was on sub subconscious level or divine intervention. I don't know, but I locked away that experience and just moved on in my life and was a really good student and had a lot of friends and once a year would cry and then bury it again. And it wasn't until my kind of early to mid twenties when 
I started to understand in part because it was at that time I was becoming introduced to lots of different personal development, self-help, spirituality books that were talking a lot about, you know, living in your truth and being present with your shadow and your pain, as well as your light and joy. And I realized that by creating the wall I had created to really grieving my parents, I had also put up a wall to the deepest possible connection with others because I don't think we can selectively put up walls in our lives. When we're putting up a wall to protect us from the darkness, we're also putting up a wall to block out the, you know, our potential for light. And I realized that it, it was time for me to grieve. You know, it was time for me to cry for real. It was time for me to rage. And, and I allowed for it really for the first time ever in my, my early to mid twenties. And all that really looked like was making space to feel what I was feeling and to really, uh, to really honor the experience of, of losing my parents like that and knowing that it, you know, it makes sense to cry hysterically often and it makes sense to rage against God and the world or whatever you believe in. And when I started doing that, I felt like, because I carried around their death as a big secret in my life. I never wanted people to know. I didn't want people to know how they died. I felt embarrassed and ashamed, and I didn't want to be pitied, and it completely overwhelmed people, especially in my teens. Um, so I, it was my big secret, you know, and once I started sharing it and being more open and available to talking about it, it, it really shifted my life, and I was able to, I noticed that my connections with people became much deeper and my relationship with myself started to feel just more honest, if that makes sense, you know, more willing to, to recognize, like, I have a, there's a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow inside that, that needs to be looked at because when we don't look at these things, these, these darker parts of ourselves or these more painful parts, um, they're not going anywhere. They're still staying within our system and they're affecting us emotionally. They're affecting us physically in ways we don't even know, you know, and it's only when we allow for space to, um, to look at them and work with them, um, that we can start to, to in some way heal. And I don't mean to suggest closure. I don't think we ever find closure with grief like this, but we certainly do find, degrees of healing and we figure out how to integrate that into our lives and we move forward um, the best that we can. I'm speaking with uh, Scott Stabile. He's the author of The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. And on, on page 35, I underlined this sentence, uh, to silence shame, we must announce it. Um, and that seems so counterintuitive because that's the very thing we want to hide, what we're embarrassed or ashamed or you feel exposed. But uh, as you point out, um, we have to actually let people see that uh, and, and or let it be out there uh, for it to not have its power over us. Is that right? That's been my experience 100%. I mean, th shame thrives on secrecy. That's how it lives. It's, it is a secretive experience. But the moment you share those things that you know, your profound secrets that you're so ashamed of, um, the power that shame carries dissipates immediately. And so often in my life, depending on the shames, I look back and I'm like, I can't believe I was holding on to that as such a secret for so long. You end up feeling like it, it ends up feeling a little silly often. And you feel com when compared to the freedom of that kind of honesty, 
you know, there's there's no trading in that kind of fee, um, freedom and truth of announcing those things that you're ashamed of, in my experience. And that shame, if, if we don't, uh, if we keep it as a secret all the time, it really has physical uh, effects on us, doesn't it? I, I think it, it absolutely can. I think it 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 affects us in, in myriad ways, you know, and, and because we put so much energy, you know, we put so much energy into our shame. We put so much energy into keeping our shame a secret. And I know speaking from personal experience, I mean, one small example was losing my hair at a young age in college and always wearing a baseball cap in college and always being so self-conscious that someone could, you know, God forbid, discover that I was balding in my early 20s. I was so ashamed of that experience. So much mental energy was put into guarding my bald head. And you can't put all this energy into one thing without also taking away energy that you can give to, you know, greater joys and connections and experiences in your life. You also talk about your brother, Ricky, who died of, of an overdose, uh, struggled with addiction all of his life. And uh, listeners of my program know my, my son suicided uh, five years ago. So I shared a lot of, uh, I resonated, I should say, uh, yeah. with many of the things that you were saying in there, and particularly how you kind of came to what we might say, an appreciation. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but you, you write there about your brother, he was gentle, so gentle, ultimately too gen gentle for this reality. He loved our family with his whole heart, but was never able to find a true home in our world. Do you mind talking about Ricky? I don't. Uh, first, let me say I'm deeply sorry about your son. That's, uh, you know, it's it's just so tough, the, these these experiences in our lives, and especially with our, our loved ones. And, you know, with, with my brother, oh, thank it you. was, you know, with um with my brother Ricky I just I came to believe and I believe this of people who in general who struggle with addiction and I also believe most of us on some level struggle with addiction we live in an incredibly addicted society and you know the fine line between those who are seriously addicted to something and those who are just you know on the edge it's it's a very narrow line um but I I find that I found that my brother was really sensitive, I think, and couldn't make sense of this world without turning to heroin, like couldn't really function, you know, in a sober mind in this world for whatever reasons. And he was 18 years my senior. So I can't pretend to know everything that was going on in his head. And he was addicted to heroin, as far as anyone knows, from the time I was an infant. So the, the only lens I was able to view him through was as a junkie and that's how I viewed him in my younger years when I couldn't I couldn't make sense of his choices and I really resented him and I resented the pain that he was creating in our family um but in late later years and especially I think after he died I was able to to greater appreciate just the person he was and he was an incredibly loving and kind person and I, you know, at, at one point I grew to believe that Ricky could never have overcome his addiction, that it was too strong and addiction was only an incurable disease. And I later came to feel that that's not true. I think that um, addiction may not be a choice because I don't think people who would choose to be addicted to heroin consciously, but I absolutely think sobriety is a choice. And if sobriety weren't a choice and people weren't making that choice every single day, um, 
you know, it, it says to me that people always have the power within themselves to overcome whatever it is that has a hold on them, simply because we have countless examples of people making those choices. And that's not in any, this is kind of far from, I don't know if this is related to what you were asking really, but it's, um, you know, it's not an easy choice, certainly. Um, but I, I no longer believe that any drug or alcohol or gambling addiction or whatever the addiction is, I no longer believe that that, that ever has to be more powerful than the, than the person influenced by it. Scott Stabile, my guest, he's the author of Big Love, The Power of Living uh, with a Wide Open Heart, uh, talking about his brother uh, who died from an, an addiction uh, long term. You know, I, 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 uh, I'm with you. I'm going to push back just a second, though, and, and I'm wondering if there is a biological aspect to this, uh, thinking of set points, <laughs> you know, of people who may um, – I, I don't know. I mean, there, are, there may be some people who just are – Alice, it says an AA, just institutionally, constitutionally unable um, to to uh, to make to make to make the move just because I don't know, perhaps they're just biologically set. But I don't um, I, I wrestle with that a lot with my own uh, um, uh, issues and, and discussing uh, that with with my son. I kind of wonder what happened. You know, how could that, how could yeah. that have uh, yeah, what's the difference between uh, he and me or he and my daughter or, or, or any of those kinds of things or your brother and you? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question. I don't pretend to have the answers for it. You know, all I all I know is there are many, many examples, countless examples of people who were addicted to heroin and who were able to find a way beyond it. I don't know why my brother wasn't able to in his lifetime. You know, I don't know. And I certainly can't speak to your son's experience or why people take their lives. I just, um, I don't know. I only know that if you're still alive and you're still breathing, there's always hope. There's always the possibility. There's so I've, I read a lot of memoirs and I've read so many memoirs of people's struggles who were really at, at such a rock bottom that you can't believe they turned the corner, but somehow they did, you know, and I don't know why they were chosen in that moment to be the one who turned the corner when my brother wasn't able, but, um, but plenty of people do, which gives me hope that there, that there is hope until there is no longer. Uh, absolutely. Um, and you also made it, made a level here of, a finding of forgiveness uh, for, well, your brother, but also for the person who killed your parents. That's pretty big. How did how did you go through that process? You know, I mean, in a word, it was through empathy, and that was I hadn't I wasn't thinking about forgiving their killer. You know, for years that wasn't that wasn't even I didn't even conceive of it. You know, at the time, and. Then I recognized again in, in my, I would say in my early 20s, uh, when I started to, it was the first time I really started to consider the experience of the man who killed my parents. One, I started to recognize that it's never healthy to hold on to this rage and this blame and the, these thoughts of, you know, vengeance against anybody. That's an incredibly toxic energy to carry in your system. And I thought, well, I, I started to consider the man who murdered my parents from a different place. I, I started to realize that nobody who's operating from any place of self-love or self-worth 
um, or of being seen in this world could ever murder other people. It just wouldn't happen. So I couldn't connect to killing somebody, but I could absolutely connect to feeling worthless and feeling unseen and feeling unloved. I could connect to being so angered by someone that you wish they would die. You know, I could connect to all these very human feelings and experiences that I imagined might have played a part in why their murderer chose to do what he did. And, and then I realized like this man is just another human being like me. He made a horrible choice. Um, but he's no less worthy of love. He's no less worthy of forgiveness than I am. And once I started to really see him through that lens and connect to his humanity, I noticed that when I started to think about him or would think about him, it wasn't with rage and hatred in my heart. It was with forgiveness. So it wasn't this moment where I consciously chose forgiveness, but I feel like because I was consciously choosing empathy, at one point, forgiveness found me. And from that moment on, it was when I would think about him, it was with a forgiving heart. Yeah, that was the line I was going to uh, going to quote back to you when you wrote uh, "Forgiveness found me." Uh, that that aspect of of grace, it's it comes to us uh, unexpectedly. Uh, although at the same time, we have to make ourselves open to that, and and of course, that's where empathy uh, certainly has a role. What about uh, big love and spreading love throughout the world? How do you uh, what do you kind of say to people? Um, who are on your Facebook page or who you interact with on, on how to begin to uh, let their lives be found by love? You know, I, I'm super dedicated to love. Like I have found in my life uh, that there, nothing, nothing has played a more powerful role in my life than my commitment to acting from love. So I believe in it. I'm completely dedicated. And, and what I've learned is that when we dedicate ourselves to being a loving person, when we dedicate ourselves to being a forgiving person, we are going to find our way there. And so what I say to people is because I believe so much in the power of love and how it changes our lives and the world, that if if you dedicate yourself and bring to that dedication awareness of those times when you're operating outside of that energy. You know, if someone's posting something on Facebook that's really angering you, rather than attacking them and going crazy, maybe take a step back and ask the question, which is a question I ask myself constantly, you know, what does love invite me to do in this moment? How is love asking me to show up in this moment? And I found that when we ask ourselves that question and allow ourselves even 15 or 30 seconds to sink into that the that answer we're we're more than likely not going to respond the way we would have through the you know through rage and blame and all of those things and all that question does for me sometimes is it removes me from a situation and it tells me scott now is not the time to engage because you are not in a place of love and i don't i don't in any way want to suggest that I'm always in a place of love at all. You know, I'm, I'm working really hard. I think love takes a lot of work. I think that we are naturally geared, um, toward, you know, and I, when I'm talking about love, I'm not just talking about love of others. I'm talking about love of ourselves as well. I think we all know as human beings, our minds naturally go to self abuse and we're critical and we can judge and condemn in a heartbeat, but actually going beyond that and making the harder choice of love, it takes commitment, you know, and it takes awareness. 
And it takes, I believe, ownership in those moments when we're being nothing but a jerk. You know, can we be courageous enough to own that and take responsibility and then bring ourselves back to a loving place? And I just encourage people to play, like to look at, look at it, look at how love impacts your life and look at how when you're choosing it. And again, love means kindness. Love means compassion. Love means forgiveness. When you're choosing these things more often, I have no doubt that you're going to see your life change in a positive way. Scott Stabile is my guest. He's the author of Big Love, The Power of Living uh, with a Wide Open Heart. He's uh, talking about his book on tour right now, and, and we're on via, via Skype. Uh, he's in, in, uh, in the Bay Area. And we're my, many, um, and myself, I consider myself in some respects uh, an activist. Uh, and one of the things that's difficult is when the the job seems so big uh and and we're so involved in the crises that uh the world is facing and uh we can get really wrapped up into it and and yes. and, and burnt out by it and and on on one level I want to find love but I also don't want to have love isolate me from the causes at hand um what what do you think about about an activist uh, who's involved say in in dealing with climate change or, or whatever it might be. Um, and, and how, love, how we can bring love into that. Yeah. I love, I love that you're bringing this up because I, I feel like, um, I'm also an activist and I feel like what can happen for quote unquote spiritual people and, you know, the personal development sect and people who are trying to heal and be more loving. What can happen is that they, I found, and I saw this in myself in the more so in the past than now, certainly, but this idea of disengagement because to, you know, to be a part of politics or to be involved in these dialogues is beneath us because we're spiritual people who are all about peace and love and Zen and, and all that stuff. And that to me doesn't feel real. I don't believe love is silent in the face of injustice. I believe the love I'm speaking about makes a lot of noise in the face of injustice. And what I'm trying to do, and I promise you, John, I have not mastered this at all in this political climate, um, mastered showing up with love always, but I'm trying to see, um, because I'm angry so much of the time about the state of our country and world and all of the injustice that we're seeing, um, in every area, you know, from the environment to human rights to, to everything. Um, I'm tr what I'm trying to do instead of just moving forward with my anger, I think anger is a beautiful catalyst. It shows us, you know, when I'm angry, it's typically because something feels unjust in the world, you know, and it's stirring up this rage inside of me. And that's wonderful. It's like, okay, look at this. You're pissed off. Why are you angry? But from there, how can we weave in compassion to the conversation? How can we weave in empathy to the conversation without in any way condoning those things that we find horrific and hateful? You know, I will never condone Nazis marching in the streets. At the same time, I don't want to just spew hatred into the conversation. So how can I stand up for everything I believe in as clearly as I possibly can and still remember that on the other side of this dialogue, even if this person is saying something that I'm completely in opposition to, can I take 15 seconds to imagine what it's like to walk in that person's shoes? Can I take 15 more just to consider their struggle? Because what I've, what I've found in my life 
that when we can bring that kind of empathy and compassion to any conversation, it's really hard to show up with hatred in our hearts. And that's all I'm suggesting in, in what I'm trying to do in, in my activism and when I write about political things on my page. And also there's always a backlash, even if, I try, even if I'm as loving and clear as I know how to be in what I'm saying, if I'm saying something that is counter to what someone else believes, there's always a backlash. But I've also noticed that when I'm coming from a more compassionate and open place, that more people are available for dialogue than might have been otherwise. And that's all I'm saying. I'm all, uh, act, be an activist, please. This is not a time for silence. And especially if you're, you consider yourself a spiritual loving person, we need more people like that in this political dialogue. So if you, if you are that person, speak up and teach us all how to communicate, you know, from a, a, a more patient, compassionate heart. I like the line you just uh, you said, uh, love makes a lot of noise in the face of injustice. Scott Stabile, great book, Big Love, The Power of Living uh, with a Wide Open Heart. Scott, All appreciate right. you much. Have a great tour. Thank you so much, John. You're listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. Up next, Dr. Andrew Budson talks about memory. His book is Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory what's normal, what's not, and what to do about it. Love and memory on Progressive Spirit. Don't go away. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. In this second half of the show, we explore memory. My guest is Dr. Andrew Budson. Dr. Budson is professor of neurology at Boston University, a lecturer in neurology at Harvard Medical School, and chief of cognitive and behavioral neurology at the Veterans Affairs Boston Healthcare System. His career combines education, research, and clinical care to help those with memory disorders. And we are discussing a book uh, that has just come out called Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It. This is a book that he co-wrote with Maureen O'Connor, and he's with me via Skype from Boston. Welcome, uh, Dr. Budson, to Progressive Spirit. Uh, thank you. It's very nice to be here. Well, I was looking at the preface of your book right off the top, and it said... You walk into a room to get something and forget why. You cannot think of the name of a friend at church, even though you've met her a half dozen times. You can't remember as many details of important events of your life as your spouse, including those as your wedding and family vacations. A week after seeing a movie, you have trouble remembering the name of the movie and parts of the plot. Uh, you uh, spend too much time looking for keys, glasses, wallet, or purse. And there are others, but I said, yeah, that's me on all of these. And so now I'm a little paranoid. Um, is my memory shot? What am I doing? Well, some of those uh, different issues in the preface are totally normal, uh, particularly as people get a little bit older. Uh, others of those issues are, in fact, uh, concerning for memory problems that could be due to Alzheimer's disease. 
And in some of them, it actually depends upon, well, what was your baseline? If you were somebody that's always had a lot of trouble with names, then maybe having trouble coming up with that uh, name of the friend at church is just normal for you. But if you were somebody who actually never had difficulty with names and it's a new problem, now maybe it is. So uh, those things are listed there because they are very common problems. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all abnormal, but uh, the whole purpose of the book is to help you uh, figure out whether or not uh, those and other issues that you have noticed in your life are normal or are they not normal for you. And so uh, tell me about uh, this book and how it came to be. It's it's really written in a friendly manner. You trace uh, two uh, characters, Jack and, and, and Mary, I think it is. Well, there is. There's my memory, Jack and Sue, throughout the book. So tell me a little bit about how you've structured this sure. and, and, and how it works out. Yeah, a- absolutely. So, you know, we, we wrote the book because, you know, we wanted to empower people to be able to figure out uh, for themselves uh, whether or not the changes that they've noticed in memory are normal or are they not? Are they things that they should go and see their doctor about? And I'll tell you, I just uh, finished up a busy uh, clinic this morning. And even uh, with my own patients, uh, the other reason we wrote the book is that it is simply, there's simply not enough time in a, a brief clinical appointment to tell my patients like everything that we would like to to have them know about. And so that's the other reason that we wrote uh, the book to try and sort out those different things. When one starts to suspect, gosh, I'd keep looking for my keys or, or I really have uh, having trouble with remembering names, what might be then that first step to uh, kind of analyzing whether or not one's one's memory is is part of normal part of aging or is something to look into and, and to see a doctor even. Yeah, exactly. So so step one uh, is learn what is normal memory. And in that step, we talk about, you know, what are problems that are normal for aging and what are problems that are not. And I, I think one good way to, to think about this is to use a little bit of a filing analogy. So if you think about our, our memory system like a, like a filing system, one part of our brain, which is the frontal lobes, right in uh, the front, right behind the forehead, uh, I think of that as our file clerk. And it's actually those uh, frontal lobe file clerk that's going to get information in from the outside world and put it into our memory file cabinet. Now, the frontal lobes, as we get older, they don't work quite as well as they used to. Sometimes information needs to be repeated a couple of times in order for it to get uh, a hold of uh, by the file clerk. Uh, and then when we're retrieving a memory, sometimes it takes a little bit longer to get the information out, and sometimes we need a hint or a cue in order to retrieve that uh, information. But all that can be totally normal with aging. In uh, Alzheimer's disease, the other part of the filing system gets affected, the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is the file cabinet. So if you put your hands on your temples, it's deep in there. That part of the brain, when it's affected by Alzheimer's disease, think about you open up a file drawer and there's a big hole in it. 
the frontal lobe file clerk can be, say, really efficient at putting information into the file cabinet. But if there's a big hole in the file drawers, then all information disappears. And that's what happens in Alzheimer's disease. In normal aging, it may take uh, a couple of times uh, for information to be repeated in order for it to get into the memory stores. It may take a little bit longer to get information out of the memory stores. And one may need a little bit of a hint or a cue to get the information out, but you can still do it just fine. With Alzheimer's, what happens is the information is put in, but then it's rapidly forgotten and you can wait time and have all the hints, cues in the world, you can't get the information out. And so in step two, determine if your memory is normal, that is uh, when you can uh, hopefully sort out whether the memory problems that you are experiencing is due to uh, just trouble getting the information in or is the information actually rapidly lost? What would be a test for that? And, and when you say a aging, um, what, what, what number are we given to that? Are we talking mid-50s or mid-40s or 60s or 70s? Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. So <clears throat> believe it or not, uh, our memories all peak in general around age 20, 25. And uh, there are changes that can occur to the memory uh, starting then and just going downhill. Uh, but the problems that I think most people uh, experience, it's more after age 65 when these types of problems are particularly uh, noticeable. When we're seeing uh, younger individuals complaining about uh, their uh, memories, people in say their 40s, 50s, early 60s, the things that are probably at the top of the list are perhaps changes in hormones, uh, whether that is uh, through uh, menopause or because of thyroid uh, dysfunction or sleep problems is uh, another very common cause of memory problems in healthy individuals. If we don't get enough sleep, it is uh, troublesome for the memory for two reasons. One is that if one is tired the next day, it is hard to pay attention to things and then also um, we now know that our memory goes from a short-term temporary store to a long-term permanent store when we sleep. And so if we don't get good sleep, then uh, we're not going to be able to have good long-term memories. And also related to that are, are uh, stress, right? Stress with a job perhaps or uh, grief or anxiety or depression. That can also affect memory. A absolutely. And that uh, we talk about in the section about uh, treating one's memory loss. And there are a couple uh, different ways that stress and anxiety, grief, depression can affect memory. Sometimes there can actually be changes in the way the whole brain is working because someone is feeling depressed. And even if the brain is functioning properly, but if one is anxious or worried about something or feeling sad about uh, something, then it can be hard to concentrate on that new information that is coming in because one is thinking about something that is upsetting. So uh, those are very, uh, uh, very common causes of 
memory loss that are you know not due to a brain disease. My guest, if you were just joining us on Progressive Spirit, is Andrew Budson. Uh, he, along with Maureen O'Connor, have co-written Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It. So let's say I'm in the position now of thinking, gosh, you know, I just... I. I am forgetting a lot. Maybe I ought to just get a checkup. So I go and get a uh, check out with my general practitioner. But what's the next step? How uh, would uh, she or he go about testing whether or not my memory is normal? Yes. So the, the first comment I'd like to make is that you are doing absolutely the right thing because the primary care doctor is uh, able to uh, correctly figure out whether or not uh, the memory is, is impaired in the majority of people. And the things that you want to make sure your doctor is doing is, uh, in addition to, of course, you know, taking a history in terms of listening to you, in terms of the types of problems that uh, you, you've noticed, uh, they should do at least a, a brief uh, pencil and paper test to see how your thinking is doing. And that can be as quick as 10 minutes. Uh, sometimes you might be referred out to another clinician to do uh, pencil and paper uh, testing. There should be a image of your brain, which would either be a CAT scan or an MRI scan. And there should be some blood work for some of those common uh, hormone changes, changes in uh, thyroid uh, levels, as well as measuring uh, some common vitamins that, believe it or not, uh, a vitamin deficiency can cause memory problems. And the most common one that we measure for is vitamin B12. So those would be some of the things that we would want your primary care doctor to be doing to evaluate if your memory is normal. Yeah, well, that's what I also wanted to talk about. Are, are some vitamins and perhaps uh, medic medicines that people might take to improve memory? And vitamin B12 is uh, at the top of the list. Yes, absolutely right. So uh, vitamin B12, it's very common for people to have deficiencies uh, of it. And I, I want to be clear, if your uh, levels are normal, taking extra vitamin B12 uh, has not been shown to be helpful. But it is very common to have low levels of B12. And believe it or not, even if you take a B12 supplement, your vitamin levels can sometimes be low because as people get older, a large percentage of the population has difficulty absorbing uh, B12. So it is important to get that, uh, that one vitamin level checked. So there are products out there that you see that say boost your memory with this or that. Uh, should we trust those? Yeah, in, in general, uh, there's really no evidence that such products are uh, helpful. There's unfortunately uh, not been any uh, vitamin or uh, uh, sort of nutraceutical that's been proven to be uh, helpful. Uh, the importance of the vitamins are to take them if one's levels are low. But if the levels are normal, none of those things have unfortunately been shown to help. If one is interested in doing everything that one can do to keep the memory strong in terms of you know vitamins and foods, what has been shown to be helpful in multiple studies has been uh, to follow the Mediterranean diet. That's been hmm. shown in many studies. The Mediterranean diet. So that, that really does have an effect. It's, it's really changing the diet uh, in terms of normal memory loss or memory strengthening. Exactly. So... The Mediterranean diet includes uh, fish, 
olive oil, avocados, fruits, vegetables, nuts, beans, whole grains, and even a little bit of red wine. But not too much alcohol, right? Uh, because yes. alcohol can also be a detriment. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. So we want to limit the uh, alcohol to about one alcoholic beverage uh, per day. So that means five to six ounces of wine or a 12 ounce beer or about a one ounce uh, uh, cocktail. We, right, we don't want people to take more than that. The other thing uh, I'll mention is all the studies uh, looking at alcohol that have not shown any uh, detriments for this small amount is always looking at people who have been, uh, you know, in the habit of having a glass of alcohol uh, with dinner. So if you are someone who has never drunk an alcohol, I don't want you rushing out and buying a case of wine saying, <laughs> oh, I just heard Dr. Budson on the radio and he said we all need to drink wine. So, but if you are doing it, it's perfectly fine to have one alcoholic beverage a day. All right, I'm going I'm to turn to another drug. Uh, Oregon uh, has legalized recreational use of marijuana. Is uh, and uh, those who use marijuana are they at risk for memory loss, or um, is there something they can do and still use it and uh, keep their memories going? Yeah, so that it, it's a good question, and we really don't have a lot of good studies. Uh, looking at uh, marijuana use. Uh, there isn't anything that I know of that shows that it is beneficial in any way. There are some studies out there that suggest that people's ability to uh, focus their uh, attention um, is somewhat impaired by, uh, by smoking marijuana. And so, you know, if you pushed me on it, I would say it's probably better to stay away from it if you're having memory problems or concerned about your memory. But the fact of the matter is there really are not a lot of good studies out there one way or the other. Okay, I wanted to have two scenarios. I'm go I've gone to my general practitioner and uh, done uh, a number of tests. Uh, and on one level, it says, boy, you, you, we've actually got an abnormal problem. Say it's the onset of Alzheimer's or, or some other form of dementia. Uh, then what, what is the treatment for, for that? Yeah, so there are uh, good treatments available today. And uh, the current FDA-approved medications they help to boost up a level of a chemical in the brain called acetylcholine. And from a, a functional standpoint, what this can do is it can turn the clock back on one's memory to make one's memory the way it was six months ago or even a year ago. So it's not a miracle drug. It can't you know, make one's memory the way it was when you were 30 years old or something like that but it really can make a positive uh, difference. And so that is um, the standard medication that we would start people on. And the other thing I'll just mention in talking about medications is it's a very exciting time to be uh, helping people with their memory because there are many uh, new medications that are being tested in clinical trials right now. And some of these new medicines can further boost up the memory function, and other medications can actually work to stop the formation of these uh, amyloid plaques uh, in the brain or actually remove the plaques. And the plaques 
are one of the two abnormal um, substances that are found in, in Alzheimer's disease. So the uh, amyloid plaques, uh, we believe, form first, and that damages brain cells. The brain cells then build up tangles inside them, and that ends up killing the brain cells. And so many of the new therapies that are being developed are aimed to stop the formation of these plaques or to remove these plaques, uh, because if one can do that, we believe that you can actually prevent Alzheimer's from occurring. Other practices, too, in addition to medication, can uh, help keep the memory going longer? Absolutely. So one of the uh, most important things uh, is exercise. And it is, it's actually remarkable all the different ways that exercise is good for us. I mean, I think all of your listeners know that exercise is good for you. We hear it all the time. But it's, it's amazing um, all the different things that it can uh, do. So it can help to improve one's mood. It can help to improve one's sleep. And we already talked about the importance of, of sleep and memory. Uh, there are actually studies to show that whether one is aging normally or has um, a mild form of Alzheimer's disease, that exercise can help. And one of the most exciting things that has uh, been uh, recognized in the past couple of years is that uh, exercise actually releases growth factors in the brain that help to increase the size of the hippocampus. And you, you may remember that the hippocampus is the part of the brain, it's our file cabinet, where we store and retrieve new memories. So it is exercise, it really is like a, a, a miracle drug in terms of what it can do for the brain. I know when um, uh, people who have lost the, a lot of their memory, that the one, the last thing that seems to go is music. And I'm wondering, is there a, a sense in which music therapy uh, uh, can help even earlier on in, in terms of memory loss? Yes, absolutely. Uh, music really does have a special power. And some of the research that we did in our lab shows that uh, people are better able to remember information, at least the gist or the overall uh, generalities of the information, if they hear it uh, in song versus if they just heard it spoken to them. And we think that this has to do with the fact that when information is presented in a musical form, it actually is able to stimulate uh, multiple parts of the brain, both the parts of the brain that's comprehending the words, but also the parts of the brain that's uh, comprehending the rhythm and the beat and the tone and the emotion uh, behind the music. The only thing that I would just like to, to end with is the yes. fact that we really do uh, understand a lot more today about memory problems than we did even a few years ago. And there are more things that we can do to diagnose and treat it. So if anybody out there is wondering, you know, should I go to my doctor? Can the doctor really do anything about it? You know, the answer is, you know, yes, I would encourage people to go out and see their doctor, get their memories checked out if they're concerned about it. My guest has been Andrew Budson. He's the, he, along with Maureen O'Connor, are the authors of Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It, a very practical book, uh, a very helpful book. And I appreciate uh, this and uh, spending time with me today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. 
You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you'll hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm thrilled to add another radio station to the list of stations that carry Progressive Spirit every week. Welcome to WDRT 91.9 in Viroqua, Wisconsin. You can hear Progressive Spirit on Driftless Community Radio every Thursday afternoon at 530. Thanks also to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit each week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee. WEHC, Emory, Virginia. WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina. Cutstown University Radio, Cutstown University, Pennsylvania. KCEI, Taos, New Mexico. Alameda Community Radio, KACR in Alameda, California, and WLRI, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station or your favorite commercial station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schuck. Be well.